VCY America presents Crosstalk, a nationwide call-in program discussing issues that have an effect on our families, our communities, our churches, our nation, and our world. Crosstalk, an opportunity for you to voice your concerns for biblical principles. And now live by satellite and around the world on the Internet at vcyamerica.org. Here is today's Crosstalk. And thank you for joining us today here on Crosstalk. Ladies and gentlemen, there is much going on in our society today in an attempt to divide us, to stir up anger one against another. I mean, just this morning, an email went out to media facilities. Uh, I'm not sure how broad their distribution was, but told of a church in Madison, Wisconsin, that's going to be hosting a meeting on so-called white Christian nationalism. Do you know the net result of things like this is really to foster further division? At the same time, we see the promotion of CRT, its movement, and so much more. But I I want to remind you what we find in the book of Acts, chapter 17, verse 26, where it says, And hath made of one blood all nations of men, for to dwell on the face of the earth, and hath determined the times before appointed, and the bounds of their habitation. While there are those who are trying to pit one against another based on skin color, Today, our focus will be on numerous examples of black Americans who've made an impact on our nation. Joining us, we welcome back William J. Federer. Bill is a nationally known speaker, historian, author, president of AmeriSearch Incorporated. Uh, He is the uh, uh, speaker on the American Minute Daily broadcast. He has authored numerous books like America's God and Country, Encyclopedia of Quotations, George Washington Carver, His Life and Faith and His Own Words, Who is the King in America? And Socialism, the Real History from Plato to the Present. Bill, thank you for joining us today. Hey, Jim. Great to be with you. So before we speak about some of the many, many black Americans who've impacted the nation, we must recognize that one of the tools of socialism really is to cause division. And that's what's at play in our society today when we see different groups like this pop up. Am am I on course saying that? Right. And it's important to understand that Christian nationalism, the word nationalism has not been used in America before. It's, it was used patriotism. That was the word, Christian patriotism. And you have people like George Washington said, to the distinguished character of patriot, it should be our highest glory to laud the more distinguished character of Christian. And uh, even in 1965, 93% of Americans were Christian, 69% Protestant, 24% Catholic, 3% Jewish. And FDR passed out Gideon's New Testaments and Book of Psalms to all the soldiers in World War II. Hmm. Democrat president passing out New Testaments. And so uh, what they want to do is change it from Christian patriotism to nationalism. And now we have a question. Nationalism is to preserve a nation. Well, other nations were totalitarian. You have the National Socialist Workers' Party in uh, Germany. You had the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, the Soviet Union. You have these socialist countries that take away freedoms. But in America, nationalism is preserving a nation where the citizens are the king. The word citizen is Greek. It means co-king. So you want to preserve a country where the people have rights, where the people have freedom. And so what they want to do is to redefine these terms and they want to sow division. So Lucifer sowed division in heaven. And he sowed division in the garden with Adam, Blame, and Eve, and Cain, Kill, and Abel. And then you got the story of Gideon defeats 100,000 Midianites. There's peace, but he has an illegitimate son named Abimelech that sows division. Goes to the town of Shechem, as it says, Is it better for you that the sons of Gideon reign over you? Remember also that I am your flesh and your bone. And so he's doing race politics, and they go to the city treasury, the temple at Balbrith, and they take 70 pieces of silver to hire rioters, vain and worthless persons to do violence. And they went to the father's house at Ophrah and killed all the other half-brothers of Gideon, and the men of Shechem made a bin by king. So you have a country completely at peace, somebody wants power, sows division on racial politics, takes money, hires rioters, causes all kinds of violence, and then seizes power. This strategy has been used by the British to take over India, go into country, find the different kingdoms, sow division, give them guns, break out violence, conquer both. They did it in Africa. Uh, I was in uh, with, with a bishop, Joshua Lawari, last week, and he is over thousands of churches in Uganda. And he said, sure enough, that's what the British did. There's 56 different tribes in 
uh, Uganda, and they would go to one and give them guns and go to another, give them guns and stir them till they'd fight each other. And then they would be weakened, and the British would come in and capture the whole country. And, and so Karl Marx called this critical theory, where you go into a country and identify the groups, not just racially, but economically and religiously and socially, and you call them victims and oppressors, have and have nots, and you stir them up to fight each other. And then when they're both weakened, you conquer the whole country. And so in America, they call this the 1619 Project, or this idea where they want to, instead of unifying around, we're all patriots of America, and we're all want to worship Jesus, they want to sow these divisions and then pit them against each other. And then once the country's divided, they conquer. Yeah. And folks, that's what we're seeing right happen right before our very eyes today. And don't be fooled by it. Uh, they, they really are seeking to sow division. Bill, as we look at our topic at hand here today, it's hard to know where to begin because there are so many names that could be mentioned today. But as we look at black Americans who've made an impact on our nation, let's begin with one of the first black preachers in America by the name of John Moran. Right. So this is a fascinating individual. Uh, he was a free black in New York, 19, 1755, 1755. He travels with his family. His dad died, goes with his mom to Florida, Georgia, South Carolina. He's smart. He learns to read, play the violin and the French horn. He's in the year 1770. He goes to a Great Awakening revival meeting with George Whitfield. George Whitfield was the first preacher to preach to mixed race crowds. He was not allowed to preach in the churches because the stodgy, you know, the Calvinist founders of Harvard and Yale, by this time they're called old light, and they don't like emotionalism. Matter of fact, David Brainerd was a missionary, and he got expelled from Yale by saying his professor was as spiritual as a chair. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and, uh, and so Yale, Harvard, they were like really into you know, the, the structure of a government, but not the spirit of uh, evangelism. So the new lights were the George Whitfield evangelist. Anyway, um, John Morant hears him. He becomes saved, and he is so vocal about his faith. He's rejected by his family. John Morant, a black man, wanders away and lives in the woods, and he's befriended by Cherokee, and he learns their language, and he's living with them until the Revolutionary War is heating up, and the British went to the Indians to do their critical theory. Right, to stir them up, to, cut, to attack the Americans. And so the Cherokee sided with the British, and the chief, even though John Morant is black, he considers him an American, and he arrests him, and he ties him up, and he's about to kill him. When John Morant starts to preach to the chief the gospel in the Cherokee language, talk about preach like your life depends upon it. Absolutely. Um, and the chief hesitated killing him and listened until he converted. Then the chief freed him and allowed him to preach to the Cherokee, the Creek, the Catawba, and the Hussaw tribes. Then John Morant decides he wants to go back to South Carolina to preach among the slaves. The Revolutionary War is in full swing. The British capture John Morant, and even though he's black, they say, well, you must be an American, so they impress him into the British Navy. No, what's pressing? That's where if you're a young man and you're walking along the port, uh, and some ruffians from the boat get off the boat and grab you by both arms and drag you onto the boat and lock you below deck and 100 miles out to sea, they open up the deck and say, if you want to eat, get to work. <laughs> and you're impressed into the British Navy. So John Morant then gets off the boat in, in London, and he preaches in London for several years, and then he gets on a boat and goes to Nova Scotia. And he preaches to a great number of Indian and white people at Greens Harbor, Newfoundland. His life was written down into a book called The Narrative, his life story, The Narrative of the Lord's Wonderful Dealings with John Morant, a black. Went through 17 different editions. Just a fascinating story of someone that nobody may have heard of. No, but used in a very powerful way. And uh, there's another early American black preacher by the name of George, uh, is it Lyle? Right. So George Lyle was a black slave in Virginia, born in 1750, taken to Georgia. He's 23 years old. The Great Awakening Revival is going on. And he hears a preacher, Matthew Moore, and he gets converted. And George Lyle uh, wrote that he saw 
my condemnation in my own heart, I found no way wherein I could escape the damnation of hell, only through the merits of my dying Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so George Lyle's a Christian, but he's still a slave. And his master takes him with him to church, the Buckhead Creek Baptist Church. And George starts sharing the gospel, and his master, Henry Sharp, hears him and says, he is such a good preacher, he frees him. And so now George Lyle um, preached like your freedom depends on it. Right? So he's free, and he organizes a church of black members. It's called the Silver, Silver Bluff Baptist Church in Beach Island, South Carolina, in 1773. And it's considered one of the very first black congregations in America. Well, the revolution begins to heat up. And as it comes toward that area, George Lyle and his church members move to Savannah, Georgia. And they meet in a barn of a slave owner named Jonathan Bryan. And the church grows, and one of Jonathan Bryan's slaves, Andrew, becomes converted and takes the name of his master, so it's Andrew Bryan. Uh, he becomes a preacher. He becomes the pastor of that congregation, and it's called the First Bryan Baptist Church, and it was one of the first black churches in America. And in 1802, it was changed its name to the First African Baptist Church, grew to 700 members, and when he dies, the Andrew Bryan, the Savannah Baptist Association publishes in 1812, the association is sensibly affected, and this is from the Wall Builder Report in 2005. The association is sensibly affected by the death of Reverend Andrew Bryan, a man of color, pastor of the First Colored Church in Savannah. This son of Africa, after suffering inexpressible persecutions for the cause of his divine master, was at length permitted to discharge the duties of his ministry among his colored friends in peace and quiet, hundreds of whom, through his instrumentality, were brought to knowledge of the truth as it is in Jesus. And so that's George Lyle. Now, one of his converts, um, that was Andrew Bryan. I'm sorry, Andrew Bryan. Andrew Bryan was at the church that was started by George Lyle. George Lyle had another convert named David George. David George, when the British captured Savannah, uh, sails with the British to Nova Scotia, where he founds a, a black Baptist church. And then in 1792, David George goes with the British to Freetown, Sierra Leone, Africa, and starts another black Baptist church. And so George Lyle is having an impact not only on Andrew Bryan, but on David George. And then George Lyle himself decides to be a missionary. And the Revolutionary War is still going on, and so he decides he's going to leave and go to Jamaica. And uh, Alan Neely wrote in the book, Biographical Dictionary of Christian Missions, in order to be evacuated with other loyalists and British troops, Lyle obtained a loan, accepted the status of an indentured servant to pay for his passage, his boat ride, for himself and his wife and his four children on a ship bound for Jamaica. Landing there in 1783, he repaid the debt, secured permission to preach to the slaves on Jamaica. Um, anyway... Uh, ends up converting 8,000 people and starting like 300 different churches. Wow. And just an amazing man, George Lyle. Folks, uh, we're going to take a quick break here. We're talking with Bill Federer today, black Americans who've made an impact on this nation. And we think of the many of these early black preachers and, uh, wow, how the Lord has used them in a very powerful way. Back in a minute on Crosstalk. Back to Genesis with Dr. John Morris author and seminar speaker with the Institute for Creation Research. Dr. Morris, today's a heavy topic. Is there a scientific explanation for suicide bombers? Chris, our world today is on edge because of a suicidal terrorist. Since evolution claims to be a theory of everything, there must be an evolutionary explanation for even this self-destructive behavior. And sure enough, some evolutionists are now saying that suicidal tendencies are a variation of an evolutionary adaptation that was previously useful in some evolutionary sense. Creationists just stand back and wonder how they can be so misguided, so deceived. The Bible says that man was created initially in a very good state, in the image of God. Yet when Adam rebelled against God's order, creation was permanently distorted, and now we live in a world dominated by sin's ruinous effects. Chris, so you see, what began back in Genesis continues today, even with suicidal bombers. Thanks, Dr. Morris. 
You're listening to Crosstalk on VCY America. William J. Federer is our guest here today on Crosstalk. Uh, you hear his voice often. He's been with us many times on Crosstalk. Uh, he is a historian. He is an author. He is president of AmeriSearch. And uh, today, uh, taking uh, time to focus in on black Americans who've made an impact on our nation. And uh, one such uh, uh, listing is those of... Uh, uh, black pastors who uh, preachers in America and many converts coming to Christ as a result of their life and ministry and telling about the likes of John Morant and George Lyle and Andrew Bryan. And uh, uh, you were mentioning also uh, David George here, Bill. Right. And uh, I'd like to add another name to the list, Richard Allen. So Richard Allen was a slave in Philadelphia and he sold with his family to a plantation in Dover, Delaware. And as a young man, his master, Stokely Sturgis, gave him permission to attend a Methodist religious meeting. So for those not familiar, you have Anglicans, and the king is the head of it, and you had John Wesley start a revival movement inside of the Anglican Church called Methodism, and then when the Revolutionary War is going on is when the uh, you have George Whitfield preaching up and down the colonies. When he dies, Francis Asbury takes his place. He's 26 years old. He rides on horseback from Canada down to the Caribbean, preaching 300,000 miles. And Francis Asbury is ordaining people to become Methodists. Methodist ministers. So Asbury breaks the Methodist revival movement outside of the Anglican Church into its own denomination. And so here you have this slave, Richard Allen. His master lets him go to a Methodist religious meeting. In 1777, at the age of 17, Richard Allen converted to Christianity, and he determined to work even harder to prove that Christianity did not make slaves slothful. slothful, Because if he all of a sudden became lazy, then the master would be like, well, I don't want to send any more of my slaves to go hear that religious stuff. So he decided he was going to work even harder, so the master would let more people go hear the, the minister. Finally, uh, Richard Allen asked his master if he could have the Methodist minister visit the plantation and preach. And the master said, okay. And so uh, the preacher shows up, and amongst other things, he shares that John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, called slavery that exorable sum of all villainies, like the worst thing ever. And in his preaching, he, the preacher says that in the day of judgment, slaveholders would be weighed in the balance and found wanting. And so the master is convicted, and he converts, and then he makes arrangements for Richard Allen to become free. And Richard Allen then becomes a licensed Methodist exhorter, which is like a step below being fully ordained. And in 1783, Richard Allen sets off preaching. He preaches in Delaware, in New Jersey, in Pennsylvania, in Maryland. He's just walking and preaching, walking and preaching. He walked so much that his feet became severely blistered. Well, Richard Allen, together with other black preachers, from the St. George's Methodist Episcopal Church. So the Episcopals uh, is where the Anglicans have the king as the head, and the Episcopals are in America pretty much the same, but they don't have a king, and now we have this Methodist Episcopal. These are new denominations that are coming into existence. So Richard Allen and some of the other preachers at St. George's Methodist Episcopal Church decide that they want to start their own church. And they get Bishop Francis Asbury in 1794 to come and dedicate the building. And then they get people to donate money. And who donates money? George Washington donates money to Richard Allen's church. And Richard Allen gave a really nice eulogy, uh, just saying what great, great things about George Washington after Washington had died. Benjamin Rush, a signer of the Declaration of Independence, donates money to Richard Allen's church. And in 1816, uh, they formed not just the church, but a denomination. It's called the African Methodist Episcopal Church, AME. And it's the first African-American denomination organized in the United States by Richard Allen, who's ordained by Francis Asbury. Now, the main building is called Mother Bethel Church in Philadelphia. 
and it is the oldest parcel of real estate in the United States owned continuously by African Americans. And at that church, Richard Allen gives authorization to the first woman to preach. Her name is Jarena Lee, J-A-R-E-N-A Lee. And um, so she is, has authorization to preach. And then Richard Allen supports missionaries. Well, we talked about George Lyle being a missionary to Jamaica. Well, Allen supports Reverend Scipio Beans as a missionary to Haiti in 1827. And he goes down to Haiti and has a big revival. By the time of Richard Allen's death in 1831, the AME Church has had grown to over 10,000 members, and since then, to over 3 million. And the motto of the AME Church is, God our Father, Christ our Redeemer, the Holy Spirit our Comforter, humankind our family. So just a wonderful hmm. thing. Now, Richard Allen's autobiography, he says, I was born in the year 1760, February 14th, a slave to Benjamin of Philadelphia. My mother and father, four children, sold to Delaware near Dover. I was a child, lived there upwards of the age of 20. During that time, I was awakened and brought to see myself a poor, wretched, and undone without the mercy of God must be lost. I went with my head bowed for many days. My sins were a heavy burden. I was tempted to believe that there was no mercy for me. I cried to the Lord both day and night. One night, I thought hell would be my portion. I cried unto him who delighted to hear the prayers of a poor sinner. And all of a sudden, my dungeon shook. My chains flew off. The glory of God, I cried. My soul was filled. I cried, enough. For me, the Savior died. So he had a true experience. Now, as soon as the country became a new country, the slaves that had come over from Africa, there was some of them that wanted to go back to Africa. And so there was a movement to go back, and James Madison was the president at the time. Some of these slaves went back, and, uh, or excuse me, James Monroe, the fifth president, was in charge. And so when they went back to Africa, they named the capital Monrovia, and they wanted to be free, and so they um, named it Liberia, like liberty. And um, so there was a meeting of whether or not the slaves should, as a whole, the freed, you know, go back to Africa. And Richard Allen listened and listened and listened to both sides and both sides, and finally he made a very important statement. He said, this land which we have watered with our tears and our blood is now our mother country, and we are well satisfied to stay where wisdom abounds and the gospel is free. Hmm. And so that sort of close the door on any further movement to go back and uh, recolonize Africa and to just stay and be a part of America. So you had um, uh, John Wesley and his friend George Whitfield preaching the Great Awakening Revival. Whitfield dies, ordains Francis Asbury. Well, the key meeting is 1784, and you have these Anglican Methodists uh, meeting, and It's called the Christmas Conference, and that is where they officially decided to break the Methodist movement away from the Anglicans into its own denomination. And who was present at this important meeting was Richard Allen and Harry Hoosier. Now, who was Harry Hoosier? Harry Hoosier accompanied Francis Asbury as he wrote and preached, and he accompanied other Methodist bishops, too, uh, one being Reverend Thomas Koch, C-O-K-E. And uh, Harry Hoosier was illiterate. He couldn't read, but he would listen to these sermons and listen so well he could repeat them verbatim. And as these bishops would travel, they would read the Bible out loud. You know, the horses would just sort of trot along or, you know, and, and so they, he would they just read out loud out of the Bible. He, not, he wouldn't just listen. He would literally memorize entire chapters of the Bible. Hmm. And so when, he get, when they'd show up at some place, these bishops would let him speak. And so he is the first black preacher to preach to white congregations. And people would rather hear him than the bishop. And so Bishop Thomas Koch wrote, I really believe he is one of the best preachers in the world. There is such an amazing power that attends his preaching. He is one of the humblest creatures I ever saw. And 
the um, Henry Bowen wrote, and this was also in the Wall Builder Report 2005. Um, Henry Bowen wrote, Harry was so illiterate, he could not read a word, but he could repeat the hymn as if he was reading it and quote his text with great accuracy. His voice was musical, his tongue as the pen of a ready, ready writer. He was unboundedly popular, and many would rather hear him than the bishop. And his sermon, The Barren Fig Tree, preached in 1781, was the first sermon by any black preacher to ever be, be copied down and printed. Mm. Harry Hoosier. Benjamin Rush, who signed the Declaration, who donated money to uh, Richard Allen's Mother Bethel Church, uh, Benjamin Rush exclaimed that Harry Hoosier preached the greatest sermon he had ever heard. And so... That's quite a statement. Uh, yes, yes. Now, uh, Francis Asbury was going to go preach down in the southern area, but back in the south you had Democrats, and they were pro-slavery, and they would capture black people and put them into slavery. And so Harry Hoosier decided he was not going to accompany Francis Asbury down to the deep south. Instead, he was going to go out west. And so he preached in the Ohio and Indiana area. And um, one of the uh, reports says that Harry Hoosier was a renowned camp meeting exhorter, the most widely known black, black preacher of his time, and arguably the greatest circuit rider of his day. Wow. And circuit means you'd ride in a circle, visit town after town after town. And uh, Fisk University President William Pearson said, the term Hoosier, um, such an etymology would offer Indiana a plausible, worthy first Hoosier, Black Harry Hoosier, the greatest preacher of the day, a man who rejected slavery, stood up for morality, and the common man. So the same way Luther's followers were called Lutherans, um, who, Harry Hoosier's followers were called Hoosiers. And so there were so many of them in the Ohio, Indiana area that that was where you get the Indiana Hoosiers today. That's pretty amazing. Uh, Bill Federer with us here today and just recounting, and, and we see uh, many um, early black preachers and the impact that they have made. Uh, Bill, uh, we were just a minute to break, but uh, the, the, it was beyond preachers, and there are more that we could talk about, but there is also prominent American businessmen uh, uh, as well. Uh, Paul Cuffet is one of those. Right, and a matter of fact, we did a book called Miraculous Milestones in Science, Medicine, and Innovation, and Paul Cuffet's story is in that. And um, it's fascinating. Uh, if you, if I have a moment, I'm not sure how when the break is, but um, he was a Quaker. Now, the Quakers were the first denomination to officially be against slavery. So the anti-slavery movement started with Christians in America. They were the Quakers in Pennsylvania. In 1688, they had the Germantown petition, the first petition to end slavery. And then, uh, so Paul Cuffet was a black man who was a Quaker. Uh, his father was a freed slave from Ghana. His mother was a Native American of the Wampanoag tribe. He had, he had no formal education, but he learned to read and write, studied navigation, and eventually built a uh, a shipbuilding business, and he became a millionaire. Tell you what, we're going to pick up with that after the break. A pretty amazing story here of Paul Cuffet, a prominent a black American businessman. And uh, we'll be back with more on the story after the break. This is Crosstalk coming your way from VCY America. In Matthew chapters 24 and 25, Jesus gave his disciples a profound, detailed description of what would happen prior to his second coming. He then urged them to watch, because you do not know what hour your Lord will come. So what are we to watch for? In the book, Foreshadows, author Steve Miller explores 12 major trends that point toward the return of Christ. He writes about trends toward a one-world government, the struggle to build a united European empire, the spread of all invasive technology and surveillance, the progression to a one-world economy, and the proliferation of deception and more. Foreshadows will open your eyes to recognize the signs pointing to the end times while inspiring you to take hope in the knowledge God holds our world firmly in His control. The book Foreshadows is available for a donation of $12 or more by calling 1-800-729-9829.
You're listening to Crosstalk on VCY America. Bill Federer is with us today. Uh, he is president of uh, AmeriSearch and uh, has documented so many of these stories in his writings. And, uh, Bill, I know some of the things uh, that the individuals were talking about, you actually contain their accounts in books like Miraculous Milestones and Miracles in American History. Uh, is that correct? Right. They're short stories. They're easy-to-read books. There's pictures in there. Um, Miraculous Milestones is one book, and then Miracles in American History, another book. Friends, if you'd like to obtain information on on obtaining those, you may call our switchboard at 1-800-729-9829. That's 800-729-9829. Is that a particular volume of the the, uh, Miracles in American History? It would be volume two. Volume two. And uh, that's available, Volume 2, as well as Miraculous Milestones. And again, our switchboard can provide you more information. Uh, We're talking today about black Americans who've made an impact on our nation. And much of the first half of the program talking about uh, black uh, pastors and uh, and preachers uh, who uh, have made a significant impact. And we introduced you here just shortly before the break began to uh, Paul Cuffet, a prominent American businessman, and, uh, Bill, you were just starting to get some information about uh, his Quaker background and, and the impact that he made. Well, he taught himself to read, write, and have arithmetic and navigation, which was complicated because you had to have a sextant and look at the horizon, look at the sun, have a clock, and every single day know exactly where you're at every day and know your longitude and latitude. And anyway, he ended up uh, working at the whaling on whaling ships, cargo ships. He built a successful shipyard and shipping business employing all black crews. And he sailed the Caribbean, the Atlantic, and Europe during the Revolutionary War. Paul Cuffe was arrested by the British and spent three months as a captive in New York uh, on a starving ship. Uh, After the war, he helped convince the Massachusetts legislature to allow free blacks to vote in 1783. And in 1808, he joined a Quaker Friends meeting uh, at Westport in Massachusetts, and he began to share his Christian faith at Sunday services. Then the War of 1812 starts, and as a result, he has a major financial loss, but he recovers, and then he founds a Quaker society in Sierra Leone, Africa, and provided money for freed slaves to build homes. And so that was part of that movement of going back and rebuild. In 1813, he gave half the funds needed to construct a new church. It's called the Westport Friends Meeting. Quakers call their churches uh, Friends Meeting Houses. And then he spoke at Quaker meetings in Philadelphia. He accumulated a worth of a half million dollars, purchased a 116-acre farm in Dartmouth, Massachusetts, established the first racially integrated school in that area, and was reportedly the first African-American to meet a U.S. president. Hmm. It was James Madison, and it was in the White House. And a fascinating story of um, uh, Paul Cuffe. Talk about one named Betsy Stockton. I understand she was uh, an educator and also a missionary. Right. um, So Betsy was a servant in the house of the president of Princeton, and she uh, became a Christian. She loved to read, and he let her read every book in his library. And then he let her sit in on the classes at Princeton. Uh, It was Dr. Green. And as she was learning and reading, and she decided that she felt the call of God to be a missionary. And so uh, Dr. Green arranges for her to be supported by the American Board of Commissioners of Foreign Missions. And they sent, they support her as she goes to Hawaii. And she is the first single woman missionary sent out from America, right, overseas. So uh, a black woman, Betsy Stockton, she takes a three-month journey around South America, and she keeps a, a diary of this and historians look at it. It's one of the very rare diaries that, that anybody ever kept doing it. And so she, it was a five month journey. Uh, they finally get to Maui and she helped start the first mission school. And she was the teacher and she taught Islanders and she taught them English and Latin and history and algebra. 
And then uh, in two years, there were over 8,000 students attending 200 schools in Hawaii, thanks to Betsy Stockton. Her diary was published in The Christian Advocate in 1824 and 25 uh, by Reverend Dr. Ashbel Green, president of Princeton. And Betsy wrote in there of an island church service. She said, the 29th was the Sabbath. I went in the morning with the family to worship. The scene that presented itself was one that would have done an American, American's heart good to have witnessed. Uh, our place of worship was nothing but an open place on the beach and a large tree uh, to shelter us on the ground and a large mat was laid on which the chief person sat. To the right, there was a sofa and a number of chairs um, and the king and the principal person sat. The kanakas, or lower class people, sat on the ground in rows, leaving a passage open to the sea from which the breeze was blowing. She says that, uh, that Mr. R uh, addressed them and said, it's appointed a man wants to die and then the judgment. And Anururu, uh, the interpreter, um, and the audience appeared very solemn and after they, they all prayed. And afterwards, the queen called me over and requested that I should take a seat with her on the sofa, which I did. And although I could say but few words, there was, she could understand. Soon after that, bidding them aloha, I returned to the family. And um, and then she talked about how they went to a house. There were 50 people present. And um, in the morning, one of the king's boys came to the house where she was at and asked to be instructed in English. And she said, it would be well for me to engage in the work at once. Accordingly, I collected a proper number of students and commenced. And she said, uh, that's when she began to teach the Hawaiians and it turned into all the schools. Uh, the queen, uh, Kaumanu, and six of the chiefs requested to be baptized in 1823. And then the queen banned prostitution and drunkenness, which the whaling ship sailors were unhappy with. Um, but the gospel began to spread so much that it was called a Hawaiian Great Awakening Revival. So, Betsy Stockton. Wow, tremendous. Friends, you're listening to uh, Crosstalk Program today, Black Americans Who've Made an Impact in Our Nation. Uh, so many more names, but Bill, let's just mention one more, and uh, that would be Clara Brown. Yeah, so uh, Clara Brown was the uh, slave, and she was uh, freed after the Civil War. Um, she moved to Colorado, and uh, well, actually, she got free before the Civil War, uh, and this was during the Colorado Gold Rush. And she's considered Colorado's first black settler. She lived in the, in the mining town of Central City, and she was a hard worker. She did she had a laundry business, and then she served as a midwife, a cook, a nursemaid, and she held church services in her house. And a Sunday school met in her house, and then she hosted the first Methodist church services in that area in her house. She was affectionately called Aunt Clara, and her home was a hospital, a refuge for those who were sick or in poverty. And she said, I always go where Jesus calls me. And even the Catholic Church and the first Protestant Church in the Rocky Mountains were both built in part through her donations. She invested in real estate and eventually owned seven houses in Central City. 16 lots in Denver, and had interests in properties and mines. In 1885, she was voted into the Society of Colorado Pioneers, Clara Brown. Wow. Friends, we're going to open our phone lines here today. Our number to Crosstalk, 800-733-9829. That's 800-733-9829. There are so many, many more names that could be uh, said here today, Bill, uh, I know you've written a book even on on uh, Booker T. Washington and, uh, uh, I'm sorry, George Washington Carver. Booker T. Washington is another uh, one who's made just a tremendous impact as well, has he not? Right. So Booker T. Washington was born in 1856 in Virginia, and he remembers somebody coming into the plantation when he was like nine years old and reading from a piece of paper and and his mom started crying and saying, this is what I've been praying for for so long, and I never thought I'd live to see the day. And it evidently was the Emancipation Proclamation. Uh, he never met his father, um, and he thinks that the father may have been a white man. And 
he, when he's um, nine, the, the mother and a stepfather uh, go to West Virginia, and he works in a coal mine and in the salt furnace. So you would have water bubble up from the ground like a spring, but if it went through a salt deposit, it would get to the top and be salty water. And you knew in wintertime because it wouldn't freeze, and then the animals would come around and lick it. Well, they would take that you know, water, and they'd have to cook off the water so you'd have the salt crystals left. And uh, anyway, he worked there, and he wanted to go to school, but his stepdad wouldn't let him because he needed to work. And so he made an agreement that he would work in the morning, go to school, and work in the evening. And, and he, it, he did this for a couple of years. And then he got a job working at the home of the owner of the salt business. And then uh, when he saved up enough money, he walked 500 miles to Hampton, Virginia, to go to the Hampton Institute, which was started by a union general, Samuel Chapman Armstrong, who was the general of the black, the colored troops. So that there was the eighth colored regiment, and uh, it was Armstrong that was the, gen- the the commanding officer. And in many of the Democrat states, uh, they had laws making it a crime to teach slaves to read. They thought they could control them easier if they couldn't read. And so he started the school to teach the freed slaves to read and write. And, uh, and by the way, Samuel Chapman Armstrong was born in Hawaii to the missionaries. And then, and then he came back to America and fought in the Civil War and then started the school. So George Wash- so Booker T. Washington works as a janitor in the school to pay for his schooling. And being a janitor, he's interacting with his staff, and he gets some of the inside knowledge of how to run a college, how colleges run. He graduates, goes to Wayland Baptist Bible Seminary in Washington, D.C., goes out to Malden, West Virginia, where he was originally from, and he uh, starts a school on his own and teaching classes and Bible school classes and, and then speaks at the Zion uh, African Methodist Episcopal Church there. He's invited back to speak at a graduation at Tuskegee, and he does such a good job, they hire him. And after two years, they're going to start another Freeman's College in Alabama. And they ask General Samuel Chapman Armstrong who he would recommend. And he recommended Booker T. Washington, who was the first black president of a college. Booker T. goes down into Tuskegee, Alabama, starts the school, and there's no buildings. And so his students make the bricks that they build the buildings out of. He recruits a black uh, architect from MIT uh, who designs the buildings. And then he recruits George Washington Carver to teach agriculture. Uh, His wife dies. Uh, He marries a a teacher at the school and has uh, two sons and a daughter. Uh, She dies shortly after that. And then he uh, marries another woman that is the head of the women's department there. Um, but he gets, he goes around the country, meets with Rockefellers and Carnegie's and even the Queen of England. And he's raising money to build this, this college and it grows to thousands of students impacting the world. Amazing. Friends, we're going to come back to your phone calls. And thanks for your patience for those on hold. We'll be back in just one minute. Bill Federer with us today. This is Crosstalk on VCY America. For the Worldview Report, I'm Brandon House. Our website is worldviewreport.com. Last week on my radio show, I did a monologue in which I took the founding fathers and early presidents of the United States on a tour of Washington, D.C. They were stunned at all the humongous buildings. They asked, what are these buildings for? Who works in these buildings? I explained to them the Department of Education. They were stunned that we had turned the education of our children over to a central government that today includes cultural Marxism and LGBTQI agenda. They were stunned. Then I showed them the Eternal Revenue Service. They couldn't believe we had a standing IRS that taxed people, well, during a time of non-war, and that it was based on a progressive system that penalized workers and achievers. They were further shocked by HUD, Housing and Urban Development, to think that the bounds of government had gone to private housing in the states. They wondered why the states had not rebelled and instituted their 10th Amendment vigorously. They were appalled at what Washington had become and the people being enslaved. I'm Brandon House.
You're listening to Crosstalk on VCY America. Bill Federer is with us here today on broadcast. Uh, speaking of black Americans who've made an impact on our nation. Let's begin with uh, Gary calling in from Mellon. You're on the air, Gary. Good afternoon. I'm interested in uh, the topic today because when I was in the Army in the early 70s, I went. I was in uh, the 8th Division headquarters, and I decided to go to chapel. And I didn't know who was going to be pastor, and it turned out to be a Captain Ken Edwards wonderful pastor, black guy. And ironically, I was working for the 8th Division Office of Race Relations and Equal Opportunity. So we got along really good. The Mm -hmm. choir director was a professional, and the pastor let me actually join an all-black choir in the early 70s when there was a lot of trouble in the States. Mm. But this guy was just a fantastic pastor, and his family and everything were just warm-hearted and Excellent people. So I thought I'd mention that for him. Thank you. Yeah, much spiritual, uh, rich spiritual heritage. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, Jeff in Superior, Wisconsin, you're on the air. Hi, good afternoon. In Superior was founded in 1854, and there was a man by the name of Bongo, and for many years Superior had what they called Bongo Days. I guess he was one of the founding people of the city of Superior. But also in Chicago there was a guy named DuSable, and I think they were contemporaries of one another. Can you tell me anything about those two gentlemen? Are you familiar with them, Bill? Some, not a whole lot. Uh, um, but I, I do know that Wisconsin was a free state. And so when you had the uh, slaves would escape, Underground Railroad, they would go to Wisconsin, some would go to Canada. And uh, one story is a, a black man named Joshua Glover escaped and got to Wisconsin, and he was captured because uh, the, the Democrats had pushed through the fugitive slave law, and he was put in jail. And so in 1854, in March, 5,000 white Wisconsins stormed the Milwaukee jailhouse and freed Joshua Glover. Two days later, these Wisconsins meet in Racine, Wisconsin, and they form the Republican Party. Hmm. So okay. a lot of history there yeah. in Wisconsin. Thank you for the call, Jeff. Faith is calling from central Pennsylvania here on the Air Faith. Yes, I wouldn't have known that the colored people at the end of the Civil War presented Abraham Lincoln with a Bible. Uh, but thank you for your book, America's God and Country. And also, who is it that mailed himself from the South to the North? Um, who is it that did what? He, said, uh, he mailed, he got into a box and was mailed to the North. Well, that's one of the stories I want to look up. That's fascinating. <laughs> okay, Thank I, I, you. I do know that uh, you know Charles Finney started uh, the uh, was president of Oberlin College, and he graduated the first black woman, Mary Jane Patterson, from college. And he is the preacher that started saying, "Look, we got to get rid of slavery now." And uh, his followers became what they called radical Republicans. And he, his university was a stop on the Underground Railroad, and they actually had railroad cars where you'd open them in the middle, and on the sides there would be the ends, but they would put a false end. So there'd be like a little two-foot space, that, and they'd have little boards where people could, and they would pack the slaves escaping into the ends of the, the train cars, and so that's where you get the, the Underground Railroad. But, um, but I'm going to have to look up the one about the guy putting himself in a, in a box. Okay, thanks for the call. Doug in Ringgold, Georgia, you're on the air. Yes, you mentioned Tuskegee Airmen. They never yes. lost a bomber due to fighter aircraft fire. And George Washington Carver derived 100 things from the peanut. You're right, you're right. And, and, uh, and also, I'm ra- I was raised up in Brainerd. I'm sorry, go ahead, Bill. I had the privilege of meeting one of the Tuskegee Airmen years ago. And they're very, very courageous. They were very uh, qualified and great pilots and uh, just a great chapter in American history. Aren't blacks like that? I'm sorry. Uh, Go ahead. uh, They sure should. Okay. Well, thank you. Great. Thank you so much. And, uh, Bill, I'll just do a quick look up here. They are saying uh, online, I haven't verified this, but Henry Box Brown 
uh, was a 19th century Virginia slave who escaped to freedom at the age of 33 by arranging to have himself mailed in a wooden crate in 1849 to uh, abolitionists in uh, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Well, there you go. Uh, what a great story. Yeah. And um, uh, I thank the listener for calling in and letting us know about Henry Box Brown. <laughs> Bill, uh, we've got just two minutes left, and just take a moment here, uh, just sum up your thoughts here as it relates to our topic today. Uh, there are so many contributions that have been made to this nation. Uh, its heritage uh, is forgotten. Uh, thankfully, you're, you're covering this in books like uh, Miracles in American History, Volume 2, also Miraculous Milestones. Uh, just your, your closing thoughts here in these last two minutes. Right. So Booker T. Washington said that the way to recover after slavery was to follow the path of every wave of immigrants. So you had the German, the French, the Italians, the the Asian, the Chinese, and the the Jews, uh, Irish. And they would always come in at the bottom of the social ladder. And they were discriminated against, treated bad, but they would work hard and work together and live together in the same little apartment or house, or they'd pool their money, and then they would send their kids to school, they'd get education, they'd buy businesses and get jobs, and as they grew in economic prosperity, they became respected, and then the next wave of immigrants would come in, and Booker T. Washington said, this is what we got to do. And he says, look at the Jews. And this is Booker T. Washington said, there's no race that has ever been persecuted as bad as the Jews for thousands of years, and now look how successful they're becoming because they're working together. We need to do that. Uh, he says, I don't want you to just get a job. I want you to create a job. He says, I want you to own land. And he had a detractor named W.E.B. Dubois that said, no, you got to agitate. And you just got to make a lot of noise and whine. And, um, and W.E.B. Dubois criticized Booker T. And Dubois went over to Russia and praised the Russians and their communism. And then he went to Germany and praised the, the Nazis. And then he went to China and met Mao Zedong, and he praised communist Chinese. Of course, millions of people died through those regimes. And then in 1961, W.E.B. Du Bois joined the Communist Party in America. And so we see the two threads. One is, says, work hard, get an education, you know, be like, you know, Ben Carson or, um, you know, Clarence Thomas. And and the others are what, you know, the Jesse Jackson, L. Sharptons and the Black Lives Matter and the rioters and and the other ones who infiltrated the colleges and stirred up this division. So you see these two threads still going on today. Wow. Bill Federer with us here today. His website, AmericanMinute.com. AmericanMinute.com. Bill, thanks for being with us today. Thank you, and thanks for all the callers. And, friends, thanks for joining us today on Crosstalk. You've been listening to Crosstalk via satellite and the Internet from BCY America. Views expressed may or may not be those of this station. For a CD of today's program, send a donation of $6 or more to VCY Tape Ministry, 3434 West Kilbourne Avenue, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, 53208. Or download by RSS or podcast from crosstalkamerica.com. And join us again for Crosstalk. Crosstalk.